Hi, this is Dominic Preziosi, editor of Commonweal. Today, we're here with a special year-end episode. Commonweal podcast producer Griffin Olenek joins me to share some of our favorite conversations from the past 12 months. They include interviews with Michigan State Senator Mallory McMorrow, Molly Wilson O'Reilly and Natalia Imperatori-Lee, Father James Martin, and Professor Kim Haynes-Eitzen. They're all coming right up on the Commonweal podcast. Hey, Griffin, it's good to have you here on the Commonweal Podcast, uh, together face-to-face. Well, it's great to be here in person in the office. The first interview that we're going to play a clip from is the interview that you did last spring with Michigan State Senator Mallory McMorrow. So tell us a bit about that. Yeah, so Mallory McMorrow gave a speech in the Michigan State House last spring that immediately went viral. She'd been accused of grooming in a campaign ad by a Republican colleague, and she responded really forcefully, if you remember the clip, by calling out homophobia and other anti-LGBTQ hate speech, all while she was also citing her Catholic faith as a political inspiration. A lot of our listeners might uh, have noticed that she's been kind of prominent in national political conversations lately, urging Democrats to turn their attention towards capturing state legislatures across the country. And her efforts paid off, of course, this past November, when Michigan Democrats secured both the State House and the Senate, the first time this has happened in the past 40 years. Well, that sounds great. Let's take a listen. You spoke very powerfully about the responsibility that power and privilege confer on those who possess it, the duty to offer service, protection, and allyship to the marginalized and powerless. And I think a lot of us have been waiting for something like this. I think this is the, the response is indicative of this, right? Why aren't we getting it and how can we begin to act? I think it's, it's the, even the word privilege, I think has been politicized. I get pushback of being, I'm white privilege McMorrow. There are certain people who I'm Senator white privilege and, and that's used as a pejorative. And for me, especially the way that I was raised, it's nothing to feel bad about, but it's something to acknowledge. And I think all of us, have some privilege comparatively to others. We have something that others don't, regardless of our income or our education level or how comfortable we are. And there's always something that we can offer to somebody else. And it is, I think that service is a privilege. If we have the ability and the mental capacity and the time to be of service in a way, that is a privilege. And I I wanted to really address that, but it's so easy to be comfortable and to say, you know what, this isn't my issue. And I think for a lot of people who look like me, there's also a fear of maybe engaging in the wrong way or saying the wrong thing. And, and I think in, in, a, in an attempt to sometimes be sensitive and a fear of saying the wrong thing, too often people aren't saying anything at all. And it's not doing anything to stop hate from growing and, and being weaponized in really dangerous ways. So a moment ago, you you hinted at this, and and in some of your interviews prior to this, you've been pretty frank that even though you continue to draw on what informed you being raised Catholic, the experience you had with the church growing up was not the best. How do you go about reconciling some of these factors? I mean, how do you stay committed to ideals like faith and service when the church you were raised in can sometimes seem to make it so hard? Yeah, and I, it's been a lifelong journey. It's not a struggle. Struggle is the wrong word, but a journey to figure out those two things. And I think of it like any job that you're in, you can get hired into a job and you think it's your dream job because it's a company 
that you admire and you love. But if the management is bad when you get in, it might not be the experience that you wanted, but that doesn't necessarily mean that changes what that organization stands for or is. And that's sort of the, the way that I equate this. I mean, the fact that the management of my church, the physical place, didn't offer the best, most welcoming experience to me and my mom and my family doesn't mean that faith is any less powerful. And I think I really wanted to take from my mom, and she had me when she was pretty young, she was 25. So I think even she was figuring out how to best express that. She taught CCD for a while and was very active in choir with us and, and all of the activities. And I think she really found her comfort and her strength in service, in the soup kitchen, in inviting people to her house. I joke with people, I never had a key to my house growing up. Like people just walked in and sat down and started eating food and it didn't matter who they were, where they were from. And sometimes it was strangers. And that was probably looking back, like not a super safe thing to do, but that's just who she was. You know, our house was a community center for anybody who wanted a place to go or somebody to talk to. She would regularly invite a man over who worked at the grocery store who I don't know that he even had any family of his own and he was mentally disabled, but he was always over at our house for barbecues and dinners and, and we got to get to know him and hang out. And that is really what I grew into was modeling her. She was always of service to others, sometimes to her own detriment. But I think that's what she really took out of. You don't have to be in church in the same pew every Sunday, but you can do things in your daily life every single week that are of service and express faith through works. I want to talk about a phrase you used in, in your remarks on the floor, uh, and it really resonated for, I think, a lot of us, performative nonsense, which you used as a criticism. To what extent do you see this taking the place of authentic political action and the responsibility of delivering concrete gains for constituents? Well, I, think, I think one of the frustrating things to me is not only are the actions of the senator who said that the really hateful things about me, not only are they negative towards the LGBTQ community, they're really disingenuous to her own supporters because it's a way to deflect. It's a way to scapegoat and make people so angry and hateful that they somehow believe that the reason your healthcare costs are too high is because a trans fifth grader wants to play soccer. And that is wrong. So I think that really getting back to authenticity. I remember one of my favorite classes in college was comparative religion. I loved learning about all of the different religions and frankly, what we had in common versus differences. And I, I vividly remember sitting in class with a student who had gone through Catholic school and I was public school K-12. But he made the argument that, I forget what book we were reading, but that the character couldn't be held responsible for his actions because he wasn't a practicing Catholic, that he wasn't in church every Sunday and didn't hear the lessons that were being told to him. And I just thought that was such nonsense. Like, it doesn't take sitting in the same pew every Sunday to look around the world and your community and take the lessons of faith and apply them through works and love and reaching out to the sick and the poor and those who have less. So that is really what I tried to hit on is, you know, just writing in a survey that you are Christian or putting in your Twitter bio it, it is not the same. It's performative and it's nonsense and it's not showing faith through works. So fairly or not, democratic politicians are perceived not to acknowledge how faith and religion figure into their lives and their work as legislators and leaders. 
and that this might even hurt them electorally. Yet we do see from figures like President Biden and others that indeed faith can guide their approach to policy and to action. Do Democrats have a faith problem they need to address? And I guess if so, how do they do it without engaging in just a different version of performative nonsense? Yeah. And I don't want to claim that my story is everybody's story. I do think that people are hungry. And I think the response to this speech shows that, although it certainly wasn't my intention, for authenticity, to feel like and trust the person that is asking for your vote. It's a heavy thing. I am asking people to trust me to be their representative in their state capital, to vote on their behalf, to express what they need. And that takes a lot of trust. And I think everybody should share what their own beliefs are, even if it's complicated and it's not as clear cut and dry as I am Catholic or I am Jewish or I am Muslim. If you have a faith background, wonderful. Tell people about it. If you don't and you find service in other ways or value in the community, share what that is. Because I think that the most important thing is we find that connection with people first. What do we have in common? And I think a lot more of us love our families, love our communities, love our neighbors, want to help people. And in whatever version of faith we believe in, we all have that in common. And I think that's something that I hope, whether you're a Democrat or a Republican, we find authentic ways to talk about. Because again, going back to my favorite class being comparative religion, we might have different beliefs, but that's what's really interesting about getting to know people. So Griffin, why don't you tell us who we have up next? Yeah, so the next clip that we're going to play is from a conversation between our editor-at-large, Molly Wilson-O'Reilly, and um, Manhattan College professor of religious studies, Natalia Imperatory-Lee. They got together to talk about their immediate reaction to the leaked draft of Samuel Alito's decision to overturn Roe versus Wade and eliminate the constitutional right to abortion. Yeah, that was a, a really powerful conversation. I mean, we kind of did it in a different way. Yeah. Instead of having an interviewer ask a person questions, we, we thought the two of them would be a good pairing to sort of interview each other. And what emerged was a really powerful conversation about women's rights, the hypocrisy of some elements of the pro-life movement in the Catholic Church. It was a particularly powerful conversation because it was very raw. They were sort of processing things in the moment, and they were gracious enough to let us capture that by recording it. Yeah, that sounds good. And I remember this uh, episode very well. But let's, uh, let's let our audience take a listen. My students laugh about so much when we start talking about feminism in class is this initial definition that Elizabeth Schuster Fiorenza uses and others. It's just the question of, are women people? Mm -hmm. Do women get to be people in the way that other people get to be people? Do women have moral agency or is women's moral agency allowed and disallowed by the state? Do women get to make are we capable of complex moral decisions? For instance, situations of war, right, where life and death are on the line, allows a soldier to make prudential judgments. Women are not given that. That ability is not recognized in a woman that is making a, a life and death judgment about continuing a pregnancy, right? We are not, like, we can talk about fetal life having value without immediately jumping to, and that value trumps <laughs> every other threat to human uh -huh. life, uh -huh. every other aspect, even of that woman's life, right? I'm, right? I'm very conscious of the fact that anytime women want something, 
for themselves, it is fiercely attacked mm-hmm. <laughs> unless that something is at the service of someone else. I was teaching Latino Catholicism this semester, which is always a very fun class to teach in the Bronx because you get a lot of, <laughs> you know, Dominican kids and Mexican kids. And, and we talk about this phenomenon of, that was described by a sociologist, Evelyn Stevens, called Marianismo, which she calls the flip side of machismo. And mm-hmm. it's all about women's, you know, this is true in, in a number of different religions, a sense of women's spiritual superiority and how, you know, women are responsible for the souls of men and women live to serve, want nothing more than their family's joy and are committed to taking on the sadness for their whole family, whether through mourning rituals or self-sacrifice or whatever, in the name of the family succeeding. And any woman who steps outside of that, whether it is not adhering to the specific mourning rituals or, interestingly, there's a caveat, if you are someone's mistress, you do not have to mourn, which I thought was nice. It's a real sort of endorsement against marriage, I guess. I don't know. Anyway, any kind of joy or self-actualization is viewed as bad womanhood. Uh And every kind of sacrifice, particularly sacrifice that results in self-injury or self-censure or never leaving the house again, is viewed as heroic virtue. How much of that is getting replayed in, in these conversations, right? Women are expected because of our moral superiority to have and display at all times heroic virtue. And women who choose not to sacrifice themselves to the point of death are viewed as selfish. Our church does not have a very good track record endorsing women's self-actualization. Right. And I don't, I wouldn't want a conversation like this to go by without really talking about women's personhood. Mm -hmm. Um, When I was reading, you know, reading excerpts from anyway, uh, Alito's opinion, I, it was funny. I felt like I, I, I recognize this as a Catholic, the way that he, first of all, just his whole thing. I, I don't have a lot of disillusionment left for me with the current Supreme Court. I'm not a lawyer, but I've read a number of things coming from them now that I just feel like, are you kidding me? Like, I, like maybe I should be on the Supreme Court because I can make a better <laughs> argument than that. The whole like, well, abortion's not in the Constitution. Like, drop. Like, that just, what a stupid argument. But like, neither's an AR-15. Right. We can't seem to get rid of those. But when he keeps, he talks about like the unenumerated rights and that what's actually in the Constitution, greater minds than me have already pointed this out. But if you go looking for references to women's autonomy or women's rights in a document that was written in the late 18th century, you're not going to find it. And then when he goes on to talk about how women have political power because they vote and they even vote more than men, you know what right you won't find in the original draft of the Constitution is women getting to vote. That's where this isn't, I mean, it's the, the timing may have been somewhat of a surprise, but it's really not a surprise in that the groundwork for this has been laid for generations at this point. And we can't pretend this is something that's out of the blue or that this wasn't well thought out or that the mechanisms for continuing to criminalize things that relate to women's autonomy, like contraception or equal marriage, are not also on the table. And that's something that should worry us all, right? We've known for years and years what makes abortion less likely to occur, and none of it is criminalization. All of it is social services, support around health, women's health, 
sex education and access to contraception. None of these things are things that the church has been on board with. Maybe the thing that's angering me the most now is watching Twitter Catholics and social media Catholics be like, well, now's the time to really Mm -hmm. support. It's like, you have had years and years to really support these initiatives and it has never been your goal. And I am not going to fall for the idea that it's your goal now. That's where the pro-life movement just kind of surrendered all of its legitimacy in this singular focus on the Supreme Court and the singular focus on criminalization. Even if there were other voices in the movement, they weren't loud enough. Mm -hmm. And now here we are. And I don't know who's expected to believe that now the church is going to work really hard to support women in crisis pregnancies, but you can bet it's not going to be me. I would say that one of our responsibilities as Catholics living in a pluralistic society is to recognize that our convictions are rooted in history. They must be rooted in history and that the United States government does not have a history of making laws about women's bodies that is not wrapped up in racism and white supremacy. And that now that many Catholics have gotten what they want and abortion law is reverting to the states, we should take note of reality and say, (laughs) what are the trigger laws that are going to go into effect? None of them are Medicare for all. None of them are support for foster care systems that are so broken. All of them are increasingly regressive criminalizations of even more precarious times in even wanted pregnancies. It's just a fraught, sad time in the church's history and in the nation's history and certainly in in the history of women's lives. We will once again be watching women trot out their trauma in an effort to be considered human beings. And that's just, that makes me very sad. Sorry to end it on such a low note, but that's where I am. We'll have more of our Best of 2022 show in a minute. The Disaster Services Corporation, also known as DSC, is a nonprofit and Catholic lay organization that prevents families from falling into situational poverty due to disaster. It's a sister company to the Society of St. Vincent de Paul. House in a Box is one of the most well-known programs operated by DSC. House in a Box provides new furnishings to disaster survivors. All families receive the same items. The program is scalable to the size of the family and starts at $3,200 for a family of four. Please consider giving the gift of a fresh start to a disaster survivor family this Christmas season during DSC's 25 Days of Giving. You can donate at www.svdpdisaster.org. So Griffin, our next guest is something of a regular on the Commonweal podcast, and he'll probably be familiar to our readers. That's Father James Martin. That's right. So Father Martin came on to talk about Building a Bridge, a documentary about his LGBTQ ministry that came out earlier this year. It's a great film, and it gives a real sense of the obstacles that this work faces, not so much from the hierarchy, as Pope Francis has been vocally supportive of Father Jim's work, but from family members and conservative Catholics who think his work either doesn't go far enough or goes too far, calling for tolerance, respect, and love for the LGBTQ community. 
Okay, thanks. Let's take a listen. Jim, another one of the strengths of this film is the way that it incorporates criticism of you and your work, and not just from traditionalist Catholics, which we can get to in a minute, but from even from some LGBTQ Catholics and their families. Some feel that your advocacy doesn't go far enough, especially in terms of pushing for a change in church teaching on homosexuality. How do you answer some of those tough questions when they come up? Oh, sure. And a lot of people ask that. I basically say, look, I'm a Jesuit priest. I'm operating within the boundaries of the Jesuits and the church. There are limits to what I can say, and I'm not challenging any church teaching. But I think at the beginning, there was some pushback, and we, they, we talk about that in the film, and I had to be open to that. What's happened, though, over the past couple of years is that I think the LGBTQ community, especially the LGBTQ Catholic community, have come to uh, understand what I'm doing, right? Within these boundaries, here's where we can push. And there's a lot of places we can push, and there's a lot of things we can do within those boundaries. Now, there are others in the community, like Brian Massengill, who openly challenge church teaching. So we do see ways in which, in which you do push, in which you yourself are pushed, and, and you accept that all very graciously. I'm thinking of one very touching moment at the end of the film where you don't receive permission to march in the Pride Parade but you do show up to St. Francis of Assisi in Midtown to do a mass wearing rainbow socks. So could you just talk about the ways in which you push and how you view that? Sure. Well, funny story. So I take a vow of obedience in addition to poverty and chastity. And so anything that I'm, I'm going to do that seems controversial, I asked the provincial and I was going to march. And he said no, which I was fine with that he's the provincial. And then someone said at St. Francis of Assisi, would you like to do this mass? Now, I said, <laughs> without knowing, oh, sure, that's a nice thing, the day before Pride. I didn't realize it was the official pre-Pride mass. <laughs> and I get there, and it's a big deal. And I had formulated my homily to reflect some of these things. But I went there thinking that this will be a nice thing to do. It's a mass and everything. And that, to me, interiorly, that also didn't seem as controversial. But I'm very careful about anything I do or anything I say, getting approval. And one of the reasons is, some people don't quite get this. One of the reasons is that it's because it reflects on the, the Jesuits as well. So if I said something untoward or really uh, provocative, you know, it would make other Jesuits get into trouble, right? So it's, it sounds crazy, but if I say something, not because I'm the sort of spokesperson for the Jesuits, but if I said something really provocative, and there was some sort of open discussion between, say, a, a high school and a college and a bishop, right, about, say, LGBT stuff or GSAs, that would make it harder for them. And so I have to recognize that. So that's why I, I, I want to color within the lines, but also I, I really do want to ask permission. So I'm doing all this from within the church. That's how I see it. And according to my vow of obedience. And there's a real, paradoxically, a, a kind of interior freedom that I hear you identifying. Could you speak a bit about that? How have you arrived at such deep interior freedom with respect to your LGBTQ ministry? Well, that's a long answer, but basically I had an experience in prayer on retreat where I was imagining myself with uh, Jesus at the rejection at Nazareth where he's rejected. And I asked him, and how are you able to do this? And the answer I heard in prayer, not hearing voices, was um, Jesus saying, must everyone like you? So there's a freedom from the need to be liked and loved and approved of by everybody. But also I know that I'm doing this within the context of being a Jesuit. And I wouldn't be doing this if I weren't a Jesuit. And so it makes sense that I would ask permission and get, it, get approval. But also I think it strengthens the voice. Because if you think about it from a practical point of view, if someone says, oh, this is terrible, I'm going to contact his provincial or I'm, I'm going to contact his ordinary, Car Cardinal Dolan, they will say, 
We know that he's already told us that. And, you know, so for example, an easy example is this website. So this website, I didn't just throw it up. I told my provincial, I told the people in Rome, they all know, my editor knows, my superior knows in my house. So that just, I think, makes it easier to me, for me to move ahead. Now, I may have to trim my sales a bit. They might say, you know, well, you might not want to do that part of the website. And I have to be open to that. But that's part of my life as a Jesuit, which is how I do everything. Mm-hmm. Why do you think homosexuality is such a neuralgic issue for people? Like, it does come up in the film. Uh, and we hear Brian Massingale give a very beautiful answer. Could you both talk about his answer and, and how you both understand this question? Why does it provoke such hatred and outrage, do you think? Yeah, well, one of my, one of my favorite lines in the New Testament is uh, perfect love drives out fear, which is really beautiful. And I think perfect fear drives out love. And so a lot of it is interior. The other thing I found is that the people who are the most rageful, so you can disagree with what I'm saying, and I've had people write me thoughtful notes, and what about this, what about that? But oftentimes, people who are really furious are betraying something about themselves. I was at a talk in Westport, Connecticut, at a very nice parish. 95% of the people were very welcoming and happy to see me. And a woman came up to me afterwards and started screaming. I mean screaming. I will not do this over the microphone. And the next day I talked to a friend of mine who's a therapist and I said, uh, where is that coming from? Because it was, it was the first time I had experienced that in my life. People just, I mean, literally at a, in a public setting, screaming at me. And uh, I said, where's that come from? And she said, there's something going on inside of her, either her own conflicted feelings about her own sexuality, someone in her family, some encounter she had. So that's her. And you need to understand that's where it's coming from. And again, this is why so many of these, you know, real critics are, quote unquote, ex-gays, or you can see it. It's not just one thing that they're focused on. It is the only thing they're focused on. It is fear and it is, um, and you know, it's look, it's homophobia. It's very easy to demonize people who are seen as other and to make yourself feel like you're in the in crowd and everybody else is in the out crowd. So we've started this new website called Outreach. It's at outreach.faith and it's a place for LGBTQ Catholics and those who minister to them. We had that a letter from the Pope. We have all sorts of wonderful articles and resources, news, a section called Gaudete, which raises up places, Catholic institutions that are providing a welcoming home for LGBT people. We have a conference coming up. And also, you know, this is a big part of my life too. I'm writing, I'm, I'm working on a book on Lazarus. Funny enough, I'm thinking of calling it, you know, after the quote, Lazarus come forth. But the Greek is more simply translated as Lazarus come out. But my publisher said, if you call it that, people are going to think it's another LGBT book. So Lazarus, come forth. So Griffin, our next clip is from an episode that I particularly liked, and it was your idea to pull this one together, and I'm really glad you did. It's uh, Cornell University professor of religious studies, Kim Haynes-Eitzen. And it was a good episode, but I'd I'd like you to tell us more about it. Sure. So this was really fun to put together, especially because Haynes-Eitzen and her publisher allowed us to use sound recordings that she'd made of desert noises across the world in the Middle East and the American Southwest. Her book project called Sonorous Desert, What Deep Listening Taught Early Christian Monks and What It Can Teach Us, is unique because it takes seriously the presence of noise and sound in ancient monastic texts. And in the episode, we're able to recreate some of that meditative approach that she uses in her writing, um, but to actually listen to the sounds in real time and comment on them. Yeah, so uh, let's take a listen to this one. You've spent the better part of the past decade recording desert soundscapes, both in the Middle East and the American Southwest. 
I want to play one of those clips now. And afterwards, perhaps you and I could talk about the things we notice in the sounds and what those sounds might indicate about the nature of monastic solitude. So Kim, tell us about this recording that we just played. When did you make it? Where did you make it? And what are some of the things that that you identify as you listen to it again? Sure. What you just heard is a montage or a collage of a set of recordings that I made in the Negev Desert back in 2015. Mm. They were made at different times of the day. So we begin with wind, and that was at night. It was... Pitch, pitch dark, listening to that sound of the wind going from fairly quiet winds to much more boisterous winds. Moving towards dawn at a spring, also in the Negev, where the birds are you know, doing their dawn song and the day is heating up, becoming more lively. And towards the end, listening to the anthropogenic sounds that come in, the mm. jets, the trucks, the herding of sheep and goats at at Mm -hmm. a farm. So there's a lot, I think, that I learned about the ancient monastic soundscape by actually listening to deserts now. Mm. You know, I've been asked many times, did you make recordings because you were trying to capture exactly what the monks heard? The answer is no. What I was trying to do was to work in a kind of evocative way. Can we call Mm. forth some kind of ancient, a residue of the ancient acoustic registers, even by listening today? Mm -hmm. And what struck me is so often I would make recordings. I'd position myself in as remote a place as I could go where I thought I'd be free from all human noise, sound, and invariably things like jets would come into the recordings. And I really wrestled with that. That's one of the narratives of the book is my own coming to terms with a desire to find silent desert landscapes, because silence is something that the monks talked about so much, that quest for silence and for solitude, Mm -hmm. and constantly being thwarted. Mm -hmm. And so 
What I discovered, I think, is I found a resonance, really, with the ancient monastic texts that talk about monks' frustration with noise. Sometimes Mm. it's the noise of children in a monastery. Mm. Sometimes it's the noise of an army that's passing by. These are distracting sounds, and they wrestled with that. I found myself coming back to those texts and and looking again and, and hearing more of the acoustic registers, things like stories about ravens croaking. And then you record those, and it, it, at the very least, it gives you a way to evoke something of the past. Could you talk more a bit about some of those texts where sound shows up? How is sound described? What sorts of spiritual forces do, do these different sounds evoke, or, or would they have evoked for ancient monks? Yes, so one of the, what I think of as the most noisy or cacophonous text that we have from the time period I was working on, so this is coming from the 4th century, about a 3rd century man named Antony from Egypt mm-hmm. goes off into the desert. This is a really, it's a lengthy biography. It's an ancient biography, so it's not exactly like what we would think of as a biography, but it's a biography of this man named Antony who goes off into the desert to avoid being burdened by family, society, get away from distraction, find silence, find solitude, devote himself to prayer, a hermit lifestyle. And yet, it's one of the loudest texts we have in the sense that Mm. he goes Mm. to the desert and he is in the the text has him living in different kinds of living situations. Sometimes he's in uh, ruins of an old fort. He goes farther and farther out in sequences, farther out into the remote desert. But he he hears mobs of people, people coming to him day and night. And one of the you you asked about the spiritual dimensions. I mean, one of the key features of this text is that he hears demons, and mm-hmm. these demons are there to tempt him, but they do things like they roar like a lion, they mm-hmm. hiss like a snake, they actually chant hymns, Christian hymns, mm-hmm. and they sing, mm-hmm. they, they read scripture, they recite scripture. All... So the demons are, are chanting and reciting scripture. And, okay. <laughs> yes, yes. In this yeah. story, they are doing everything they can to dissuade Antony from his quest from his monastic resolve and crashing of thunder. That's a key image, earthquakes, the sounds of earthquakes. So if you look at, say, sayings of the Desert Fathers, you catch little glimpses. What do you do when you hear that sparrow? Mm. What should your response be? Or Mm -hmm. when you hear the wind in the reeds? And these are texts that are post-biblical, and they inherit a lot of the images that we can see in biblical texts, for example, mm. God's voice sounding like many waters, or mm. the crash of thunder in- indicating impending doom, or you know any kind of uh, these sorts of sounds that are, on the one hand, environmental, but they're also meant to point to something higher. We hope you've enjoyed this look back at some of our favorite conversations from 2022. All of us here at Commonweal and the Commonweal Podcast wish you a Merry Christmas and a Happy New Year. And we're excited to return with new episodes in January. A good New Year's resolution? Rate and review us. 
This is Dominic Preziosi for the Commonweal Podcast. The Commonweal Podcast is produced by Assistant Editor Griffin Olenek and the Commonweal staff in partnership with Sandberg Media. Wally Boudway composed the music, and David Dalt did the editing. For the Commonweal Podcast, this is Dominic Preziosi.